It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best, Guys Guys Radio. This is our 400th show for Guys Guys Radio, and I'm very honored and proud to have brought these shows to you over the last couple of years. It's been a great trip, if you will. I'm not going to say journey, but it's a it's a trip, and it's kind of been a caravan, if you will, because I keep adding different types of guests to help my listeners out there to get them thinking, to get them feeling, and to get them acting, because that's what it's all about. There's so much in the mainstream media that's fed to us. They take certain stories, and they just shove it down our throats, and then they move on to the next thing. And then we're so busy with our lives and our jobs and our families and our burdens that sometimes we don't have the time to be able to consume new information, new ways of thinking, new considerations. And that's what we like to do here on Guys Guys Radio. I bring out different types of guests and you determine if that information is something that you want to weave into your day-to-day existence or just say, that's interesting, but maybe not for me. That's cool, whatever. But I'm going to keep bringing you those guests that I think could be helpful depending on your specific situation and your interests. So Guys Guys Radio. So today, we're going to have one guest on Guys Guys Radio. He's a uh, Emmy Award-winning costume designer. And maybe we don't think about all the pieces and the preparation and the players that take part in creating a uh, big tentpole production in Hollywood or a TV show or some of the content we see that streams. But believe me, I come from the world of advertising and marketing and haven't been on a lot of advertising shoots. You would not believe the work, the anxiety, the pressure, the decision-making that goes into creating a 60-second commercial 15-second commercial, even a 10-second commercial. There's a lot that goes into it because invariably everybody wants to jam in more information that's going to fit. And that's why a lot of times when you watch commercials on TV, they're just just so jam-packed with information. It's like, what's the takeaway? And, you know, the way things are in our culture is what what gets through is the real simple sound bites. If you look at the current situation in politics, you've got, you know— very easy, you know, make America great again. Whatever you think of it, it's a good phrase. It's a catchy phrase and it, it makes sense. And it's like, it's an easy one. And there's like, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. And uh, for the other side, the same thing. Once you start listing, here's like 20 different policies and getting into that, people start to nod off. So you've got to, to get through to people. It's always from an emotional standpoint. With costume design, it's also making that um, helping make that emotional connection between the audience and watching the film or the TV show, whatever. Our guest, his name is Daniel Orlandi. He's going to be out in a little bit. He's worked with everybody in Hollywood. He's worked with, let me give you a couple of, of the uh, productions he's been on. Logan with Hugh Jackman. Ford versus Ferrari. Fantastic film with Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Jurassic World with Chris Pratt. The Little Things with Rami Malek and Denzel Washington, The Alamo. He's worked with Sandra Bullock, Kevin Costner, Da Vinci Code, Frost Nixon, Ron Howard, Russell Crowe, Robert De Niro, and on and on and on. Daniel Orlandi is a terrific costume designer. And what's interesting, and another reason I want to have him on the show, is he actually went to the same high school as I did, and he graduated the same year. We weren't 
buddies or anything, but I'd see him around, say hi. And little did I know that he would become this really superstar costume designer in Hollywood. So thrilled to have him here. I thought it'd be an interesting guest because, you know, it's something we don't think about that much. What goes into deciding, you know, what shirt is that going to, that character going to wear? And, you know, a lot of times when we watch movies, we'll say like, I really like, like in Midnight Run. Remember De Niro had that black leather jacket? It's like, I really like that at the time. I really liked that jacket. I was like, I wonder where I could get one of those. You know, and then you can't find it because I don't know if it was just made for the film or they found it and it was an old retro jacket or whatever. But uh, Tom Cruise uh, got the whole Wayfair thing going with uh, Risky Business. The uh, Ray-Bans, the Aviators with Top Gun. So many styles have come out of movies, starting with you know Marlon Brando wearing the T-shirt way back in the 50s and on and on and on. So... Picking out those wardrobe items is a real skill. It's an art and it's a science. And uh, Daniel Orlandi is going to tell us all about that and have some stories about working in Hollywood with some of these interesting characters. You know, I worked in, as I mentioned, in advertising for years. And uh, a lot of times on the sets, we'd have an easy time. You're just like, okay, he's going to wear this shirt and this one's going to wear this. And other times it was painful in terms of getting the right wardrobe together and it all depended on how people collaborated, worked with each other. So we're going to be talking about costume design. And then I'm also going to talk about some of the things uh, uh, I've learned from doing this show and some of the things I want to do on this show more for you, my listeners, to get more information out there for you. So I think it's going to be a terrific show. Guys, Guys Radio, our 400th show. So let me start out with just a little bit of a a little bit of riffing about uh, some new things we're going to do. One, uh, I'm adding a segment to the show called Brushes with Fame. Now, I had Vincent Pastor on a couple of weeks ago, so I'm starting to interview, actually, the, the famous people, that the, the names, the celebs, if you will, who've got that big footprint out there. But in my time in New York City, just living there, working in advertising, and just being around and traveling around, and I, I, for some reason, I ran into a lot of famous people in kind of casual moments. And uh, thinking back on that, I was like, wow, I made a list the other day and I had about 50 people and the, they were all over the lot. So I thought I'd share just some of those brushes with fame, if you will. And uh, I thought it'd be fun. So let me give you a couple. I'm going to give you three today because it's the first time we're doing this segment. So the first, the first one was Keith Richards. All right. Wouldn't it be cool to meet Keith Richards, the guitarist for the Rolling Stones? You think he's going to be all drugged out or, or what, or all cleaned up? Is it all an act, or is he just Keith Richards? Well, one of the things I learned was over the years meeting all these people, they're pretty similar to some of the roles that they play, if you will. So I went to this, this was back in the 80s. I was in living in the city, and I, I used to get tickets to all the Broadway shows because we used to advertise for one of the brands I managed, Martini and Rossi, in the Playbills. So we used to get tickets to go to the show. So I went to a lot of theaters. So I went to the... Uh, Broadway production of The Elephant Man. I loved the film, and I thought it would be cool to watch the play. And it was done completely differently, and David Bowie starred as The Elephant Man. And it was very surreal. It was, it was not at all like the movie. And so I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm with, uh, I'm with a friend, and, uh, and I'm sitting there, and about five minutes into the show, uh, some guy comes kind of ambling down the aisle with a woman, and he had this swashbuckling way about him, and he slides in about three rows in front of me, and I'm like, that's Keith Richards. <laughs> and 
and sure enough, it was. So this was back in the, in the early to mid-80s. So at intermission, I left early. I went up to where the bar is, and I stood at the bar, and all of a sudden, and nobody's there yet in intermission. I went up like a, right uh, maybe a minute before the, you know, the show was breaking, and I'm there, and who comes ambling over but Keith Richards. So it's me and Keith Richards. So I, I look at him, and he looks at me, and I said, hey, Keith, how are you? And he's like, he gives me the big, that, that Keith Richards nod, and he's like, how you doing, man? And I reached out, and he shook hands with me, and I said, what do you think of the show? And he's like, I like it, I like it. And meanwhile, his uh, wife had come out, Patty Hansen. She was a big model at the time, and now people were coming out. And I ordered a drink, and Keith ordered a drink, and he didn't buy me a drink, and I didn't buy him a drink. And I was a little bit tongue-tied, if you will, because I've been a huge Stones fan forever, and here he was, the guy who wrote so many of the great songs and had all those great riffs, and it's like, Keith! And he's right there. It's just me and him. So, uh, and at the time, I was uh, not quite as uh, feeling together as I, I think I would have handled it a little bit differently now, but it was pretty cool. Anyhow, his wife's out there, and she comes out to the lobby, and all these young girls are around her. And Keith just looks over, and it's just me and him at the bar. And then his wife is surrounded by these young gals because she, at the time, Patty Hanson, was a big-time model. And it was like very ironic. So we kind of looked at each other and nodded again, Keith and I, and that was it. So that's one of my early brushes of fame in New York City. Let me give you uh, two more quick ones. So you know that character, uh, the, the Rock, you know, Dwayne Johnson? He's like everywhere now in Hollywood. Well, he wasn't always like a super duper big star. He, you know, he, when he was in the wrestling circuit, it took him a while to kind of break his way up through the top. I used to work on the Bacardi account in advertising, and one time, uh, the good news was I was an executive vice president, so I had a really good job, and because of that, I, get to, I got to fly first class for any flight over three hours, and Miami was like three hours and 20 minutes or something from New York, so I always got first class to Miami, which was, which was great. So I'm sitting there, I have an aisle seat, and a guy plops down on the other aisle seat across from me, and I look, and I know it's, 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 the, it's the rock, but he was not well-known at the time at all. And uh, so we sat through the flight. I didn't talk to him. I had my own stuff to do. And then as we got up, I looked at him. He looked at me. And I'm like, how are you doing? I said, you're a wrestler, right? And he said, yeah. I said, I really like, I enjoy your work. You guys work hard. And it's a, it's a lot of fun. He says, hey, I pre- really appreciate that. Thanks a lot. Total gentleman. Totally cool. That was it. He wasn't a superstar in wrestling yet. He wasn't a superstar in the film business that he is now. And everything else is involved with, but he was just a regular guy. And you know what? He was pretty cool. So that's two for you today. And I'm going to give you one more because it's a new segment. So Bobby Flay. <laughs> so I'm um, over at a friend of mine's uh, apartment. She lived in the Chelsea Mercantile. Her name is Liz. I'll just leave it at that. And uh, she was one of these people who knew, knew and knows everybody. So I'm at her place, and she always used to mention my friend this, my friend that. And it was like these famous people. I was thinking, does she really know? Like, are these really her friends? And she mentioned Bobby Flay. And all of a sudden, yeah, Bobby's going to come over and knock, knock on the door. And in he comes, Bobby Flay. And he was exactly like the Bobby Flay you see on TV. He didn't have, you know, he was confident guy, uh, you know, borderline cocky. But, you know, listen, he's uh, he's a superstar in the food business, and he's the biggest brand out there probably. And, uh, you know, it ain't easy to beat Bobby Flay on that show, I got to tell you that. So it's just me 
Liz and Bobby Flay for like an hour. So I talked to him about, this was when he, uh, I think he was doing Throwdown at the time. It was Throwdown with, against Bobby Flay. It wasn't Beat Bobby Flay. It was his previous show where he would go out someplace and he would challenge somebody who was making chocolate chip cookies or something like, you want to th- I'm going to want to throw down with Bobby Flay. And then they, all the local people would come around. So anyhow, we talked about his early show. He used to do this barbecue show on the Food Network. It was him and he had this guy with him. And then, then the guy got taken off and they put this uh, woman with him. And then she got moved off. And anyhow, we talked about, you know, how it was, uh, you know, producing his TV shows and all of that. And uh, he was good guy. He was very easy to talk to. He didn't have an attitude or anything. So, and I found that at more and more people I met, most of the people who were pretty well known, if you, if you don't like fawn all over them and you just treat them like regular people, they're usually pretty cool. Now, if you start calling out their character names, something like that, most of these people don't like it. You know, they want to be referred to by who they are, not who they play. But it's easy for people to get starstruck and say the wrong thing and all of that. But uh, just if you ever run into famous people, just be cool. The easiest thing you can say is, hey, whatever your name is, you know, uh, I, I like your work. I enjoy your work. Nobody can get mad if you say, I enjoy your work. So anyhow, that's my first three guys, guy, brushes with fame. And hopefully there'll be many, many more. So anyhow, guys, guys, radio, what else is going on? Okay, I wonder where everybody is with their New Year's resolutions now. Now that we're, you know, we're deep into February, what's going on? Have you kept up your resolution? I know when I go to the gym, I see very few people that I saw on New Year's Day, but there are some people who are still at it. And that's always good to see that some people are sticking with it. I'm one of these people is I make a New Year's resolution and I stick with it. And I stuck, I've so far I've stuck with my resolution this year. Why? I don't know. I'm, I'm one of these all or nothing people. When I became a non-smoker 30 years ago, I, that was it. You know, I couldn't casually go back. Uh, and uh, the same thing with any other substance. I'm, I'm, I'm in or I'm out. And if I'm in, I'm not like crazy in, but, and I was never a big smoker, but I wanted it out. So when I got rid of it, it was like, that's it. And then a couple of years ago, I came up, I had tried so many different diet plans and I came up with this diet, the uh, process of elimination diet. I've spoken about it before. And what I did was I gave up one food or beverage article per week for 52 weeks for an entire year. And I basically gave up what I was craving that week. And I had started with alcohol and I went through the entire year. I lost 25 pounds and I'm in pretty good shape. And I didn't, I didn't need to lose 25 pounds, but I did lose 25 pounds and I was in great shape. But more interesting, I, I lost my cravings for sugar and also for salty stuff and carbs that turn into sugar in your bloodstream and all of that. And I learned a lot by doing it. So I'm doing it again this year, but I, I changed the order. Uh, well, the first time I did, because I'm writing a book on it now, and the first time I did it, I gave up all alcohol the first week. And that was like, that's a big burden if, you, if you're a, a casual drinker, if you will. Because, you know, you get into the summer, you can't have a margarita, you can't have a beer, you can't have a glass of Chardonnay, like nothing for the, for the year. And I never had a drinking issue or anything. So to me, it's like, hey, I like to have a glass of wine with dinner now and then, but nothing, 52 weeks. And then every week, Every Sunday is like, all right, now what am I giving up? And it was tough, but I got through it. So I gave it uh, a rest for, for last year. I just ate what I wanted and I 
put on probably about 10 pounds back uh, by doing that. But still, my cravings had gone down. And then this year, I decided, I'm going to do it again because I'm writing up a short book about the process. It's called The Process of Elimination Diet. So I'm on it now. I've been doing it for about six weeks or so. And so far, so good. And I've, ended, I've uh, cut out a lot of sugared items, cake and pie and ice cream and candy and soda and stuff I don't really eat much anymore anyhow, but I figured, let me keep knocking off the sugars. And I, in terms of alcohol, I gave up all distilled spirits except for tequila because I'm in Southern California. I've got, I left myself a little bit of an out because I love Mexican food and I love a little tequila with it. And I also can have wine and beer, but that stuff's all going to go away also. But I figured I don't want to do that right away because it was just that really hung over my head the entire year. But uh, so far, so good. So the point is, these New Year's resolutions, are you on it? Did you forget about it? Whatever. But if you, you, you got another one coming up. Lent's coming up, and then you can go, if you're, uh, you know, if you're Christian, you go right through to Easter. So there's always an opportunity if you want to change your behavior. Each and every day, we create our lives, you can do it. So if you can do it, then do it. And that brings me to this other topic I just want to touch on briefly, because I'm learning so much about it, and it's really an eye-opener, and that's this whole carnivore culture. I keep reading about all these people, like all they're doing is eating meat. And uh, they're ba- it's basically they're cutting out carbs and uh, the, the sugary kind of carbs, like rice and pasta and white bread and all of that stuff, which is not a bad thing at all. But it's, a, you know, it's, it's taking, you know, it's going from intermittent fasting, if you will, there's one way to, you know, diet where it doesn't work for me, where you eat for six hours and you fast for 18 hours and and you can eat what you want in those six hours. And it, I just, I tried it three times. It didn't work for me. It works for a lot of people. And then there's keto. So many people are doing keto. My wife's doing keto. In fact, she's on keto now after she went on a water fast. Talk about discipline. My wife has got some discipline, man. She went on a water fast for 21 days, distilled water. Can you imagine just drinking distilled water? Nothing else for 21 days. i tell you, she was like, she was loopy by the, by the end of it. Now she's uh, in her comeback mode where she's juicing now, and then she's going to go keto. And uh, my sister-in-law, I believe, is doing keto kind of car- carnivore thing. But the point is, this carnivore diet, I'm reading and listening to Joe Rogan, and he, uh, you know, he had diarrhea for two weeks when he just started eating nothing but meat. You know, it's not keto. It's just like meat. That's it. And he, he got sick for a while intestinally, and then, then he got over that. And now he had pictures online and all, he's all ripped and feeling fantastic. And I keep reading these other people just swearing by this carnivore diet is all they eat is meat. And to me, it's like, I don't know. I think the human intestine, the colon and all that is we have the same length of colon that, that uh, some of the animals who just are plant her herbivores, they're called, they just eat plants. So I don't know if we're meant to just eat meat. I quit eating meat like 12 years ago. And I'll never go back because uh, my body doesn't crave it anymore. I get all my protein. There's so many other ways, like with uh, beans and stuff, you can get more protein than you can in meat. And my system doesn't feel like it's working that hard to break things down the way it used to before. That's just me. Uh, Anybody can do what they want to do. So what's fascinating, though, to me is that people are now so into this, just eating meat, like some, you know, you can eat meat and vegetables and stuff like that, but other people are just meat, carnivore diet, that's it, or lioness diet for women. It's like, wow. And they're swearing by it. So I don't know. 
They say they never felt better. And you know what? It's, a lot of it's about how, how good you feel. To me, I have some empathy now for the animals because I don't think it's necessary for us to kill animals to, to, to survive. So why, why do we do that? Or, fa- of course, factory farming and all that, to me, is horrible. But I didn't go into becoming a pescatarian, if you will, because I wanted to save cows. But after a while, I started to realize, like, wow, I really don't need to eat these animals. But that's just me. But the, the point is... People are really getting into this carnivore diet, and I'm just wondering long term how that's going to affect people. Because you think about, you know, is it going to is it good for your heart? Does your system take a long time to break this stuff down? I'm reading articles, pros and cons, all the time where these carnivore eaters are battling these vegans, and it's like, wow, it's just amazing. So I suggest to everybody out there do some research, and if you want to have a more healthy diet, to me. The number one thing you can do is, and I'm, I'm no doctor, I can just go by my own personal experience, cut out sugar as much as possible because it's hidden in everything. Buy organic anytime you can because you don't want to be consuming pesticides. Be careful with dairy. You probably don't need it. And all of those starchy, those starches, rice and potatoes and all that stuff. Now, potatoes are pretty good for you, but there's so many other uh, pasta and all of that, and we love it, but... Is it good for you? Do you really need it? So if you can go more plant-based, if you do get your protein from meat, I guess that's okay. But, you know, eat a clean diet. That's, that's, that's the main thing. I don't think you just need to go all the way to, like, carnivore. That's it. Anyhow, Guys Guys Radio, your host, Robert Manny. This is our 400th show. I want to get into some other stuff, but we've got to get our guest out here. So... Let's uh, bring out our guest. His name is Daniel Orlandi. Uh, I'm going to give you a little preview of him in a few moments, but it's going to be a great chat. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk about kind of the experience of 400 shows and, and what's next. So thanks a lot for listening to Guys Guys Radio. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. Actually, a friend of mine from high school, Riverdale High School in River Edge, Oradell, New Jersey, Daniel Orlandi. Hi. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being here. Let's just start at the beginning because you have a really interesting job and interesting career. What inspired you to pursue a career in costume design? And what is really what really is in the uh, world of costume design? Uh, well, originally, I wanted to be a set designer okay. for the theater. Growing up, I was obsessed with the theater. And where we grew up, you know, I could go to the theater and it was so easy and so cheap. Uh, and I, uh, started it. I went to, uh, design, uh, theater school, Carnegie Mellon, where I met people that love the same things that I did, which was really eye opening. Uh, they're still my best friends, uh, my college friends. Uh, and I was working as a set designer off, off, off Broadway, working for a costume house, working wherever. Then I was a set decorator for public television and two of my best friends from college and I um, realized, hey, all of our friends in Los Angeles are working uh, and making a lot more money than we are. So, I, uh, so the three of us drove across the country together, moved to Los Angeles when uh, our landlord let us move in with half a month's rent, wow. uh, which doesn't happen so much anymore. So, so what happened once you got to Hollywood? You know, you had the uh, credentials. How did you kind of I, land your I, first gig? I didn't have the credentials. I had, you know, been a set decorator and, you know, I had some lousy uh, work for a production designer. 
Uh, by a fluke, a friend from college asked me to come and work for two days in Bob Mackie's studio. And uh, Bob just happened to be looking for a new assistant. And I got this job with absolutely no big movie experience. Wow. I didn't have a car. Uh, and he hired me. And, and uh, on a movie called Pennies from Heaven, and he got me in the union. Uh, which was at the time very difficult. How was that experience? I mean, that must have been mind blowing. You go out to Hollywood and you're working with the probably the biggest name in costume design at the time. You get a job there. That's like that's pennies from heaven, right? Yeah, pennies from heaven, and then a bunch of other uh, projects with him for eight years. Uh, it was mind blowing because I every celebrity came into the shop. You know, we made clothes for you know from Barbara Streisand to Diana Ross to Tina Turner. Uh, we worked on films and they started a fashion line and uh, we did all those variety shows and the Oscars. And uh, I learned so much from him and uh, the people that worked uh, with him as well. Uh, so let me ask you this. What do, in your mind's eye now, since you've been doing this for a while, what constitutes great costume design what is kind of the criteria what do you really need to keep your uh, eye and uh, intuition and perception open to to really make the right decisions and also to collaborate with some of these big talents and the big egos that go along with it uh well collaboration is the number one thing and as we uh costume designers we can help set the time the place and then the character so i I, you know, I was a set designer and then I realized how much I really liked working with actors. Early in my design career, uh, I got to work with Robert De Niro and he taught me a lot about costumes. Uh, every single item of clothing that he wears is, is important. I mean, he would call me into the trailer in the morning and say, are these the socks that we decided? That's how uh, dedicated he was. He would try on a thousand things. Uh, to find exactly the right piece of clothing. And it's like working with an actor and helping them become this character. He, I mean, he would try on the most ridiculous things. Okay, let's try it on. And then, you know, make a face. Yeah, no. Uh, so it was great. And he was actually very kind to me and recommended me to directors uh, and said to me, I will recommend you, but I would never force them to hire you. Sure. Um, and uh, so I was very lucky. Uh, but it's really helping that actor become that character. I've done a lot of movies about real people. Uh, so it's doing a lot of the research. It's about doing a lot of the research. And uh, I make a little book for all of the actors uh, with pictures and interesting facts about the character that they might be playing. And I like their feedback. I like to work organically. A lot of the movies I do, I don't do sketches first i talk to the actors see what mm -hmm. right we try things on maybe prototypes uh did you uh, read the script oh of course the first thing you do is read the script and then you break it down all right where is this character where do they live where uh what time period is it and uh how many costumes do they have uh and what uh what constitutes their wardrobe? How messy are they? You know, it's not fashion. It's, uh, it's costumes and it's character. 
how how do you research um, how do you research the periods then what do, what do you do what do you do as the designer say okay I'm doing a movie about let's say Ford and Ferrari you're yeah. going back uh, you know 40 50 years what do you look at what do you how do you do oh, your research well there's a, Ford versus Ferrari there's a lot there I read probably three biographies about Carol Shelby I read the book about Ford versus Ferrari I there's a million videos and pictures. There's a documentary about it. So there's a lot. And then, you know, you look at uh, pictures from the period, Los Angeles in 1963, uh, Le Mans 1966 at the race. So there's, a, you know, we had, a, we had books and books and books that we put so together. When, so when you're doing this, Daniel, um, do you then, uh, are you do, it, do you do it on the nose when you're dealing with a period? Let's say you're dealing with the 60s or the 50s or something, and you see the pictures and you do your research and say, that's what they wear. Or do you then kind of uh, uh, attune it to the story itself to embellish certain areas to better tell that story? Well, here's the thing. When you're doing a movie and there are real people in it, you want to be as truthful as possible. But also you have to, be, you have to uh, help the script and tell the story. Right. So to make that, to make Matt Damon into Carol Shelby, the clothes are similar, but they're not exact copies, except for the racing, uh, you know, the racing jackets, the Shelby jackets, the Shelby shirts. We uh, met with a man who was on his team and he had a couple of the pieces and he wouldn't let us keep them, but he let us measure them and photograph them so we could recreate them. When you're working then, do you work with the costume designer? And what's the team you're working with on a day-to-day basis? So you go to the set, I'm sure. There's, I'm sure there's adjustments. You're working with the director. You're working with the talent, the actors. Yeah. Every, everything is integrated. How does that all work from a collaboration uh, standpoint? Yeah, very collaborative. Uh, on Ford versus Ferrari, for example, the production designer and I had lots of meetings, lots of color stories, what, the, what color are the cars, what color should their clothes be. Uh, and then the cinematographer gets involved too. And it's like, what's the lighting going to be? And we do screen tests and we try clothes on uh, and we tested Matt. The director wanted to try some other things that were more uh, that were more uh, uh, flamboyant, which mm-hmm. didn't really work. Matt didn't need that. It's about the character. I don't like, you know, I don't like the costumes to get in the way of the story. I like them to help tell the story. But sometimes, you know, we carefully edit. Like when I've done movies set in the 70s, you don't want it to be so on the nose of the 70s and jokey, uh, which it can easily get. Uh, I like my costumes to sort of disappear. What was the toughest, uh, biggest challenge you've had in the business so far? Because you've worked on, let me just throw a couple more of the uh, movies. Logan with Hugh Jackman, which is kind of a modern day, but also, you know, it's uh, futuristic in a way. Jurassic Park, The Alamo, The Saving Mr. Banks, Highwaymen, Meet the Parents, uh, All the Way, Frost Nixon, Down with Love, which was really a surreal type of uh, fun type movie. Uh, flawless phone booth, very gritty, and then also last holiday with Queen, Queen Latifah. What was your, what was the biggest challenge, and what was the biggest challenge? Were the biggest challenges based on the individuals you were working with, or the specific projects? Uh, well, no, it's never really the people uh, okay. for me. Uh, most of the the actors that I've worked with are very collaborative, and they're 
uh, dedicated to the project. Uh, I've been very lucky in that way. Uh, if you say, oh, who is a difficult actor, I could give you their names and you wouldn't know who any of them are because they're the people with two lines uh, that are usually the most difficult. You know what? I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Uh, but so the show for me sometimes is the scope of a film, like the, the Alamo, where we had to make 1,200 Mexican Army uniforms <laughs> and make them at a, uh, at a cost-effective way where we, you know, had, uh, where we had embroidery done in Pakistan and helmets made in India. Uh, so it's, uh, that's always the challenge and, and trying to do it on budget. The best ideas happen sometimes at the last minute when you rush and change somebody. Uh, I remember when we were doing the, the normal heart, Julia Roberts had a costume that we had decided for this scene and they did the rehearsal and she had the costume on and I was like, it's wrong. We have to change it. She should be in her uniform. And I ran back to the trailer and she went to a little broom closet and changed her costume uh, on the set. And it really... It was a last-minute save. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, okay, James Mangold, he's one of my favorite directors. I love uh, Walk the Line and some of his other... And he does a lot of diverse type of work. What was he like in, process-wise in terms of working with him? Uh, well, you've worked first, with him a number of times, right? Yes, the first time I worked with him um, was Logan. And I got hired for Logan, and I was really surprised because I'd never done a movie like that before. I'd never done a superhero movie. And I don't think he really wanted it to look like a superhero movie, but I went in and I read the script, and you do sort of like a little discussion about, and you might bring some pictures. And it's so funny because um, uh, I brought a picture uh, of Robert Mitchum. Mm -hmm. And uh, thinking, well, that's kind of an interesting uh, look for Logan in this scene because he's a yeah. chauffeur. And unbeknownst to me, there's a huge po- poster of Robert Mitchum in Jim's office, which maybe helped get me the job. Uh, and so there were these concept sketches of uh, the bad guys, uh, the, the Reavers in Logan that were so over the top and so complicated. And I said, do you want it to look like this? Cause it's not what we had talked about. He said, Oh no, 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 no. So we mostly did it from surplus and we made pieces and, and cobbled it all together. Cause he wanted to have that rough look. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, really. You, now you won an Emmy for the magic of David Copperfield. Tell us about that because that's a whole different experience. Cause that's a stage show, right? And then was filmed for television uh, as a television special. How how do you prepare for that? Because there's some type of pizzazz with a, obviously a magic show, but you don't want to make it, uh, you know, uh, pastiche, if you will. You want to make it real because David Copperfield wants to come across as the greatest magician in the world. So what was Uh your challenge there and how was it to work with him? Uh, Yeah, I did. I did. I worked for him about five years um, doing his TV specials and his tour. Uh, That was the first job I got after leaving Bob Mackey's studio. Uh, And my friends who I went to college with and moved here with got me the job, got me the interview with David Copperfield. So we would go out to wherever he was performing and try on clothes. And, uh, you know, he had dancers and he had, but it was a really, really small show. Uh, and I was very surprised when I won the Emmy. Why, uh, why so? Because like, I, I was going to ask you, so it's like, small. okay. I there were 25 costumes in the whole, in the whole hour show. Why do you uh, think you won? 
I don't know. <laughs> but you'll take it, right? I'm happy to take it. <laughs> uh, there's a funny story. It used to be blue ribbon panels that decided who would win once the nominations come out. And you would go to a hotel room and watch all the nominees. And I had done it one year. And after I won, about six months later, I was at some event and this older costume designer came up to me and we were talking and he said, you won the Emmy. And I said, yes, I was really surprised. He said, oh, I was on the Blue Ribbon Committee. And I said, oh, really? He goes, yes, we hated yours the least. <laughs> that, that is often. When you get and a I'm script. Like, Oh, that is a funny story. When you get a script and you read it, can you tell after all this time you've had in the business, like this is special or this has to be really handled the right way by the director or like, I don't know about this, but it's a nice payday. Uh, all of the above. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, sometimes you do a job for the money. Sometimes you do a job for the love. Uh, I like to work with directors that I've worked with before. So it's really uh, whatever they want to do, I'll do. John Lee Hancock, I've done six movies with. Uh, Jay Roach, I've done six projects with. Uh, so whatever they are interested in, I'm interested. How about uh, Tony Scott? You did The Fan. Tony Scott, I've heard, is a very particular type of director, if you will. I guess I'm putting it in a nice way. Was he tough to work with or was he great to work uh, with? No, he's, he was, I mean, we miss him a lot. Uh, he was hilarious. Oh, okay. Uh, Fantastic. We'd be, at, we'd, be, um, we'd be in the costume shop at one o'clock in the morning while he's cutting the hair of some boy who's in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very kind to me. That was the first time I had worked with Robert De Niro. And uh, we really got along well. And I was a co-designer. There were two of us. And it was a designer I had assisted for a while. And she asked me to co-design it because she was leaving uh, to do another film. Uh, And it was a great opportunity for me. Uh, Tony Scott was, we had so much fun on that set. And it was about baseball. And of course, we started and he said, do you know anything about baseball? And I said, not really. And he said, no, neither do I. Uh, (laughs) That was De Niro, right? The fan? De Niro and uh, Wesley Snipes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, he's a crazed fan. And uh, Robert De Niro tried on so many clothes in that movie and it was it was a great experience and that's when that was my first uh time working with robert de niro and 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 tony scott obviously is a titan uh, r.i.p but he was he was fabulous um tell a quick story when i was in advertising we hired michael imperioli to do our advertising for uh 1800 tequila and it was very Uh successful we met him the first time he came in he had an army jacket on the sopranos had just kind of uh, wrapped up his hair was a little bit long and uh, we were down in new york on the west side and he came in and he said hi guys and he he remembered everybody's name because when i saw him on the set he was like hi bob but he, he said, okay, what do you want me to wear? So we had a line of suits lined up, and he walked over, and he took one out, and he looked at it, and he said, that's my size, and that was it. And then he said, you want me to get a haircut? Same thing, with, same thing with shoes. And then he said, you want me to get a haircut? And we said, yeah, a little bit. And he, he wanted his uh, uh, stylist to be flown in. That was it. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever experienced uh, on a movie or a TV where it's that that simple or do you run into more where there's a, you know, a lot of thinking in it, but sometimes maybe do you ever experience like an overthinking or too many cooks type of thing where you have to say, hang on guys, you know, this is the vision. 
Uh, I would say the time that there's too many cooks is sometimes doing a pilot where there's the production, the actor, then there's the network and the studio, and they all have an opinion. And sometimes the choice that gets made is the choice that nobody objects to, which Mm -hmm. is not always the best choice. Uh, So I sort of avoid those uh, experiences. Uh, Yeah, sometimes actors walk right into the clothes. I I just finished a film and uh, we had all of these clothes to try on for an actor and he tried on a few things. He goes, this is it. I don't want to try anything else on. I'm perfect. And And that's cool. That's cool with you then, right? Let's let's make sure the director likes it. Uh, Funny story, you know, I did... Uh, Robert De Niro produced a miniseries about Sammy the Bull, and uh, Michael Imperioli played uh, his friend, mm-hmm. uh, his childhood friend. And uh, we did this miniseries in New York. Uh, wow, I'm talking really loud. Uh, okay, go and, ahead. Uh, and uh, it was huge. And it was for NBC. It was called Witness to the Mob. And uh, Michael Imperioli was in it. Uh, and we had to, and it started in the 60s and went through the 80s. Uh, and it was so many clothes. I mean, the man played, the actor playing uh, Sammy the Bull had 100 costume changes. Yes. And Don Gotti had 60. And it was so huge. And we found all of these places in Brooklyn, those mob stores. Mm-hmm. And they had their basements and with all the, the old stock. And they sold it to us. And we bought so many clothes at these places in the Bronx and Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And like one time, uh, the owner of the store called me and said, some uh, picker wants to come and buy the whole basement. You better come today and get whatever you want. Because I want you guys to have it first. Fantastic. Fantastic. And um, so, so we wait. So we finished the miniseries and it was all these mob clothes, you know, those Italian knits and leather jackets and uh, the producers of the film uh, of the project said, Oh, uh, HBO wants to come and look at the clothes. Uh, Cause I, they want to buy them. And I was like, Oh, okay, great. So they came to look at them and uh, they said, Oh, Great. So they they bought them all. And I thought to myself, why is the show about opera singers buying all these clothes? And then it turned out it was The Sopranos. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. Great story. Great story. Two, two last questions for you. It's fantastic stuff. Um, what would be your uh, dream uh, film to work on? What director, what type of period, what actors kind of like a, what would be the perfect storm for you? Well, it's funny because, you know, one of the first films I did was Down With Love, which was a completely designed beautiful, show. Beautiful, yes, beautiful a job, by the way. Take on a doorstay, and it was really fun and girly, and I really enjoyed it. But the last 10 years, I do all these movies with there's barely a woman in. Uh, so I'd like to do a movie with some dresses, and Got I'd it. like to do maybe a musical or a fantasy uh so, yeah, there, you know what? I, the best thing about my job is I go into a different world every time. So what I would like to do is something different every time. Great. Listen, you've been fantastic. I always like to ask this question at the end of my interviews, if it's okay with you. All of your work over the last 20, 30 years, what have you learned about humanity from your work? Oh, it's interesting. In doing research 
from different periods, from biblical times, uh, the one thing that I think has never changed in the history of the world is human nature. People are jealous, people are sloppy, people are kind, people are unkind, and it's never changed. Fantastic. Well, listen, Daniel Orlandi, costume designer, uh, superior, uh, fantastic work. The resume, I'm looking at all the film to fills up the page. Trumbo, Jurassic World, Saving Mr. Banks, on and on and on and on. Congratulations on a wonderful career, much more success. Thanks so much for being on Guys Guys Radio. You really articulated what it's like to do your job, and I think it's really interesting stuff, and I thank you, Danny, and thank you for the friendship. Even though I haven't seen you in a million years, we still went to Riverdale together, so good luck to you, and thanks. Okay, that was an interesting discussion with our special guest on our 400th Guys Guys radio show, Daniel Orlandi, costume designer extraordinaire, Emmy Award winner, Hollywood costume designer. Wow. Here we are, 400 shows in. Let me give you the stats first, and then we will move on and do a little bit of reminiscing and what we have going on in the future. So the show, Guys Guys Radio, we're on KCAA here in sunny Southern California every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific time. 102.3, 106.5 FM, 10.50 AM. The show rebroadcasts every Sunday at 2 p.m. Pacific time. The podcast drops every Thursday on iHeart, Spotify, iTunes, slash Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, CastBox, KCAA.com, Blog Talk Radio, and my website, robertmanni.com. On my website, you'll find all the source material, everything about the whole Guys Guys movement, if you will. The name of the novel, which is the the source material for everything, is The Guys Guys Guide to Love. It's a rom-com. It's a romp. It's a novel about men for women, or it's about men for men either way, but it's about two dudes in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money in the city where they play for keeps, New York City. And the novel has been called The Male Successor to Sex in the City by 20th century iconic author Dan Wakefield. So I hope you'll check it out. If you want to support the show, please rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. And then you can follow me on social, and buy the book, of course. And then you can follow me on social media. And again, what I like to do on Guys Guys Radio, we're here to help our audience think, to feel, and to do. And... That's why I'm here. So let me tell you a little bit about kind of the history of the show. You know, it started in my bedroom in my apartment in New York City about six or seven years ago. I had a partner and we did some shows with uh, dating experts. Uh, it was like a call-in show. Uh, we had some experts on, but we also had people call in asking dating questions because, you know, it came off of my book, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love. So kind of running with that. And then my partner decided she wanted to do something else. So I had to make a decision and I said, hmm, uh, I want to expand this. I want to expand the club, if you will. So I called up a friend of mine, Brad Zimmerman, who had a one-man Broadway show called My Son, the Waiter, A Jewish Tragedy. And he takes that show all around the country. It's terrific. He came on the show, and it was magic. 
And from there, I said, I'm going to keep doing this. So I just started looking for guests. And then a couple of publicists found me, most notably Sarah Scarlett. And uh, she started sending me some metaphysical guests. And uh, at the same time, I got a lot of dating experts and dating coaches. And I I learned a lot. And I, hopefully the audience learned a lot. And then we started to up our game in terms of production and our platform. And we just kept going and going and going. And I got a lot of uh, metaphysical people, a lot of psychics, a lot of... We did, we did those shows live, and then uh, eventually I interviewed this woman. Her name is Kimberly Meredith, and uh, she is a healer, an intuitive medical healer, and uh, she did a, a healing with me, and I had medical quantitative information, that test results that actually proved the work that she did through her guides who uh, took me, if you will, to the fifth dimension for a healing, and I went along with that, and it worked. And so a couple of months later, I sent her an email and said, I just want to let you know, my test results are amazing after what we did together. And she said, well, I'm on this uh, network KCAA in Southern California. Why don't you, would you come on the show and tell people about it? I said, I, sure. I'm just going to tell the truth about what happened. And I did. And uh, did about a 20-minute segment. And then uh, her producer, a guy by the name of Gary Garver, who has a show there called Controlled Chaos. And he used to work with Howard Stern. So Hopefully he has a really good eye for talent because he asked me what I want to do. And I said, you know, I, I want to keep growing my show. And he said, well, why don't you come on KCAA? So we worked out a deal and off we went to the races. And Kimberly Meredith was my first guest. And from there, I managed to get uh, Neil Donald Walsh over the past year, the uh, creator of the whole Conversations with God series. He does not do a lot of interviews, but he graced Guys Guys Radio with his uh, interview. John Gray, who wrote Men are from Mars, Women are from Venus. Dan Millman, who wrote the Peaceful Way, the Peaceful Warrior series. Another guy who is, uh, doesn't do a lot of interviews. Paul Selig, probably one of the world's foremost channels. And he's got seven channeled books from his guide. So he's been on the show a number of times. And we had some musical guests. Heathcote Hill, rising Americana band, Luxury, the disco. Uh, he's a DJ, but he does kind of modern disco, adult disco music. We had Tony Rodriguez as a secret space program. Uh, Lynn Buchanan, world's foremost remote viewing expert. Tom Hartman, progressive radio host here up, up in the Northwest. Um, we did some fantasy sports with uh, Scott Sweeney, the fantasy sports Sherpa. And also, most recently, we had Vincent Pastor, who played Big Pussy on The Sopranos. So the, the caravan is getting bigger, and we're taking on more and more friends on the, the Guys Guys radio show, and it's just been fantastic. And throughout it all, one person has been with me every step of the way, and that's my producer. His name is Ryan Gilpatrick. He's a great guy. He's a millennial. I'm a boomer. We get together great. We get on great, and uh, he's, he's not only my producer. He always has my back, and he's a friend, too, and I'm very proud to say that. So thank you, for Ryan, for everything you do and uh, more to come. Um, what have I learned on the show? Well, I've learned a couple things. Number one is, you know, the, from, my, from my guests and from my listeners and just from life in general, I've learned that we have to stop worrying because the past, you know, the, there's, the past is in the past. The past is history and the future is expectation. You know, you can have anxiety about your future and depression about your past, but none of that matters in some ways. Yeah, I know it brought you to where you are, but it's all what you created. What really matters is right now. And you can change everything starting right now, but you have to do it step by step. A lot of people want to manifest things. They want to make things happen. But you have to do something. You have to ask. You have to work at it. You have to take those first steps. It's not going to happen 
on its own. You have to make it happen. And I've noticed that with myself. Listen, I wanted to have Dan Millman on the show. I heard, oh, you'll never get him. He hardly ever does interviews. Well, I read his book, The Peaceful Warrior, uh, uh, and then I started doing The Peaceful Warrior Workout from another one of his books. I sent him a video of myself. I tracked down his contact information. I sent a video of myself doing one of the moves from his Peaceful Warrior workout, I was doing it in Joshua Tree National Park with a cowboy hat on. I sent it to him. He must have had a good laugh, and he agreed to come on the show. I tracked down Vincent Pastor's people, told them about the show, and they said, we'll do it. You got to ask. If you don't ask, if you don't make the move, nothing's going to happen. So the other good news is, though, that we have a lot more power than we think. You know, you get mass media, they tell you what's wrong with you, your boss tells you what's wrong with you, you have in politics, like, they're bad, you're good, you're good, they're bad, you're bad, they're good, whatever, it's always being painted. That's not the case. You determine who you are, you determine every step of the way by the decisions you make, and everything is about right now. And you have a lot of power, because if you if you can then re-kind of paradigm the way you live into like creating it every step of the way, every moment, every decision you make, you are in charge. And don't let anybody take that away from you. So anyhow, that's what I've learned from doing the show and just in life in general. So I hope that I've been able to bring out a lot of cool guests for you that make you think, that make you feel, and hopefully make you take action one way or the other. And there's a lot more to come. So I want to thank my guests, all the publicists who sent my wonderful guests, and most importantly, I want to thank Ryan again, of course, and I also want to thank my listeners for being there with me and uh, growing with me, and I promise you the show is going to get better and better, and there's going to be more and more cool guests, and stick with me. The best is yet to come. Guys Guys Radio, your host, Robert Manny. I'm very appreciative, and I'm going to work hard for you, so thanks so much, and like I always like to say, 400 times I've said this, Guys, guys, finish first. It's Guys Guy Radio.